Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, 1st of December 2012 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we talk with journalist and author Ian Bruce about the history of the Brazilian Workers' Party, their experiments with direct democracy, the political philosophy of the Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez, and the geopolitics of South America. We also discuss the hopes for direct democracy, something I hope to cover further in future shows. This week's show is sponsored by the repeat sponsor, David B. The very generous first-time sponsor, Yoash O. And the new monthly subscriber, Kurt J. 100,000 thanks, gentle people. You too can donate by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. If just listening to the show is not enough for you, why not join the 79 other brave souls that have so far populated the From Alpha to Omega group on Facebook? So, to the interview. Ian Bruce is a British journalist and filmmaker. He is the author of the Porto Alegre alternative, Direct Democracy in Action, The Real Venezuela, Making Socialism in the 21st Century, and has made documentaries for both Channel 4 and the BBC. In the past, he has worked as the BBC correspondent in Caracas, Venezuela, and currently finds himself in Qatar, plying his trade with Al Jazeera. You can also find him blogging over at venezuelaanalysis.com. We joined the interview as we were chatting about the current political situation in Egypt. No, I have, I have mixed feelings about it, actually. Um, I mean, the reaction here and in most of the world media is, you know, the sort of dictatorial kind of move by Morsi to kind of, you know, acquire more powers even than Mubarak had. I, I find that a little bit exaggerated, really. Um, I mean, I'm sure if you're if you're sort of uh, on the sort of secular left in Egypt, it's pretty worrying to the prospect of the Muslim Brotherhood acquiring complete sway over all the institutions and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, we're talking about institutions that are basically the same as the Mubarak area institutions, you know, and how, how you overcome them is, is kind of a, a real a real issue, I think, you know, and maybe a worrying way of doing it. But I mean, it seems to me there is a kind of problem there that the kind of government has, you know. He has to act unilaterally in order to clear the remnants of the former regime. Well, that's their justification, isn't it? You know, I mean, it, it may be sort of, you know, um, throwing out the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. But I mean, it made me think actually a little bit about Venezuela, in a, you know, I mean, not the, in any way that I would liken the Muslim Brotherhood government to the Chavez government in Venezuela, you know, obviously completely different things. But I mean, when you have a situation and when, when you come to power through elections like that, you know, and, but, and you basically have to kind of confront the same administrative apparatus of the state that existed before, you know, there are real issues about 
how you can deal with that. They're, they're not easy answers to, you know. So, Ian, what drew you to Brazil in your youth? Oof. Uh, I, I first went to Brazil, you know, um, almost, well, not immediately, one year after I finished university. I, I mean, it was just, I think, like a lot of people at that age at that time anyway, and now as well, you know, I just wanted to kind of get away, know, get to know other things, you know, learn about experience and different things. So I just went and lived there and taught English for a couple of years. And I, and I suppose I did begin to get more politically involved and politicised uh, in the course of the, those two years. And what was the state of the left in Brazil at the time? We're going away, but we're going back a long way. We're talking, um, I was there from 76 to 78. So these were the sort of, although the military dictatorship didn't finally come to an end until 84, I mean, you know, already it was clear that the military dictatorship was sort of coming towards its end, you know. And so there, were the, there was a period when the, really the beginnings of large-scale sort of social struggles and social mobilizations against the dictatorship were happening. You know, there was a big campaign around amnesty for political prisoners and for people who'd been banished from the country, which I got quite involved in. Just towards the end of my time there, there were beginning to be the first big industrial disputes, industrial struggles, which is what, of course, gave birth to the, the Workers' Party a year or two years after I left, in fact. But I was still very involved in Brazilian things, you know, after those few years. You know. What was the background of the Workers' Party or the PT, as it's known in Brazil? Well, the Workers' Party uh, was quite an extraordinary phenomenon at that time. And, and for many of us on the left, I think, you know, who... Firstly, people who were following Brazil, but but soon much more widely, it became you know quite an inspiration because it was the first time, I guess, well for several decades anyway, yeah, the first time in the second half of the 20th century that you had a mass party with a very radical program uh, which called itself socialist, and obviously that meant very different to different people, but which which identified neither with the sort of two historic pillars of the socialist tradition in, in the 20th century, i.e. neither with the sort of social democratic parties that have been predominated in Northern Europe, for example, by and large, nor with the kind of Moscow line communist party. It was a sort of a different kind of socialist party, if you like, based on initially, I mean, there were three main components to it in its foundation. First and foremost were those big industrial struggles and the trade unionists who led them, particularly in the kind of what was called the Sao Paulo ABC, the uh, industrial area. That's the, the three big industrial suburbs of Sao Paulo, Sao Bernardo, Santa Andre and Sao Caetano ABC, which was where the big car factories and engineering factories were based. The leadership of those struggles was the sort of driving force behind it. But Lula, who was the leader of the Sao Bernardo Metal Workers Union, as the sort of best known of those figures. And the second big component in terms of numbers, probably the biggest actually in terms of numbers, were the sort of what were called the ecclesiastical base communities. Never really translated very well into English, but the sort of grassroots church communities, Catholic communities inspired by liberation theology which had a huge influence in Brazil and were sort of very well embedded in poor communities, both urban and right across the country. And that provided a massive part of the basis for the, the Workers' Party in those early days. And the third component, which was numerically much smaller, but ideologically very important, was almost all of the multiple currents of the Brazilian left, organized left, by and large, 
Marxist in its self-identification, but you know, again, with various different strands and interpretations of that, which almost of them sort of piled into the PT in those early years. Now, those were the sort of three main components, and that made for a very interesting and, and dynamic combination. And it adopted very sort of democratic internal structures, you know, in terms of allowing different currents to organize, argue for their positions, a proportional representation according to their votes on the leadership and so on and so forth. So it was in many ways a sort of template for, you know, this sort of big new party. I mean, one person I think described it in terms of a sort of almost going back to the the, the mass workers parties of the, the 19th century, going back to the from the Chartists through to the, um, the, the rise of European social democracy in Germany and other countries, you know, before the, the years before the Russian Revolution, if you like, before the, the communist parties and the split between social democracy and communist parties took effect. So, yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting and um, inspiring, I think, experience for many people on the left. And what was their particular brand of socialism? Well, as I say, it was, there were many different brands of socialism within it. It was very plural in that sense. In some ways, it was ahead of its time, you know, because I think in the last decade or, or more, there's been, I think, uh, a lot of searching in many different countries for ways of developing big, broad left parties, which would include lots of different traditions and lots of different ideological takes on, you know, what socialism one might want or what it, how, how you might get to it. Just even, even up to the sort of Syriza phenomenon in Greece just recently, you know. And I think the PT in many ways was a sort of funner of those kinds of preoccupations and, and efforts. How long did it take for the Workers' Party in Brazil to come to power? A long time, if you, if you mean at national level. The, the, the Workers' Party was founded in 1980, 81. I can't remember whether it's formally constituted in 81, I think. Maybe it was 80, I don't remember off the top of my head. And it first won, I think, a few local government positions later in the 80s. I think I'm right in saying it didn't win any control of any local councils, city councils, until 88, 89. Certainly, it was the first time it won a number of local councils. So, and then it had an interesting, exciting and inspiring experiences in local government through the 1990s. But of course, it didn't come to power nationally until uh, the 2002 elections, when Lula was elected and took up office at the beginning of 2003. By that time, of course, I think the PT had itself changed quite dramatically and its sort of political project. Certainly, the majority of the, the leadership of the PT had shifted quite significantly. And what was this new position of the party leadership? Well, I think the new position of, of Lula and uh, the majority of the leadership had basically given up any type, kind of radical or social socialist uh, transformation, even of a re- relatively moderate sort, and was much more interested in um, essentially introducing a, a number of social reforms, poverty eradication programs, and so on and so forth, but essentially within uh, and without questioning the basic tenet of sort of macroeconomic policy that had been hegemonic predominant throughout the 90s and back into the 80s, you know, which, you know, as a shorthand became known as neoliberalism. So essentially, it didn't really challenge neoliberalism. It sort of modified it a little bit and and introduced uh, some, you know, social programs and, and so forth. You know, it became what some people have called, you know, social liberal, if you like, social liberal as opposed to purely neoliberal. And that went hand in hand, of course, with the sort of reaffirmation which wasn't really an invention of the PTs, actually. It came more, I think, from a, a part of the, the Brazilian business class who wanted more autonomy, wanted more say, who sort of wanted to flex their muscles a bit on the world stage. 
and you know therefore didn't want to be sort of just the backyard of the North Americans anymore. So that that sort of partly explains, I think, you know, the the greater presence of Brazil on the world stage during the Lula years, and you know its sort of incorporation to, into the sort of slightly kind of media creation of the BRICS. What were the origins of the participatory budget concept you mentioned earlier? It, it was pretty much made. I would I would say it was largely made up on the hoof, really. There had been some kind of lesser attempts and experiments prior to that. But essentially, when the PT won the majority and won the mayor's office in Porto Alegre in 89, the PT in Porto Alegre and in the state of Rio Grande do Sul, which is the state of which Porto Alegre is the capital, the, 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 the radical left components in the PT there were probably stronger than anywhere else in the country. There were several different currents within that left wing, but they included uh, significant currents like the socialist democracy current, who came, you know, from a, an explicitly Marxist background and tradition, and who had some vague idea that somehow if they won mayor's office and won control of the, the, the municipal government, then they wanted to start working for, a, you know, a, a socialist transformation. And their, their reference points for that, in many ways, were like uh, many other currents on the Marxist left, you know, whether it went back to the, the Paris Commune or Soviets in, in early uh, revolutionary Russia or whatever. In other words, that's to say forms of direct democracy. So those aspirations of those left currents that were predominant in the PT in Porto Alegre, combined with a strong tradition in Porto Alegre of neighborhood organization, that itself had owed something to the liberation theology, um, grassroots church communities, and so on and so forth, which had been organizing in neighborhoods. So there was a sort of dynamic network of neighborhood organizations demanding a greater say and greater participation in, in local resources and local decision making. So it was the combination of those two things that came up to say, well, what, what, are we, what are we going to do? Let's try and you know involve people in deciding how the budget is drawn up and, and what the priorities are. And how does this participatory budget work? Well, the details are quite complicated, but the overall principles are, are, are not. Essentially, the city is divided up into 16 regions, which have various mechanisms, which, which ultimately are discussing their issues, identifying their needs, which then come together in a one big regional assembly and vote to decide what their priorities for next year's budget are in terms of categories of spending you know, education, sanitation, housing, paving the roads, environmental protection, etc., etc. And so they vote on what their priorities are. Then the different priorities of the different regions are put together into an overall budget plan. That overall budget plan then goes back to local areas so the detail can be filled in, the detail of exactly how, you know, what roads are going to be repaired, where the houses are going to be built, you know, what schools are going to be attended to, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this combination of the, the overall structure being determined by people's votes and then the detail being determined by local communities deciding how those priorities should be implemented. So that's the basic principle. There's also another aspect of it, which is not regionally based, but thematically based. So there are some areas, particularly in the area of culture and education, which can't be dealt with on a purely local community basis, but have to be dealt with on a, on a citywide basis. So they have the, what they call thematic assemblies, which discuss those issues and also feed their priorities into the overall process. So that, that, that's the essential, uh, essential shape of it. 
there are, of course, many different ways of conceiving this participatory budget. And in my view, the, the Porta Alegre one, with a few others as well, often directly inspired with and even linked to the Porta Alegre one, was the most radical and interesting one. And why do I say that? Because the fundamental, the fundamental difference between, I think, the sort of radical versions and the, the less radical and, to my mind, less interesting ones is, well, the, the essential one is this. Does it have sovereign decision-making power? Does it really decide what's going in the budget? Because there's another version of the participatory budget, which is essentially consultative. You know, you just say, well, we'll invite people along, we'll see what they think, uh, we'll take account of their views. But in the end, we, the professionals, the, the elected politicians, and so on and so forth, will decide. But the, the radical version essentially hands over that decision-making power to the organised community. And what percentage of the budget did this participatory budget have control over? That, that's a tricky one, because the aspiration of the, of the Porto Alegre version, of the radical version, was that it should be the whole budget. And the principle was that it should be the whole budget. In practice, it was very much less than the whole budget. In practice, what it came down to discussing was the investment budget. Let's say the, the amount of money left over that the municipality had to invest in new works, essentially, and to some extent new services, but that's more complicated. So that was uh, quite a small proportion of the, of, the, of the budget. It was really discussed and really decided on in those assemblies I described to you. Uh, we're talking about less than 5% of the budget, probably, in, in overall of the total budget. The reason for that is not particularly difficult to, to, to grasp. The vast majority of the, of the municipal budget was tied up in wages of council employees and of other fixed overheads, which were not the kind of thing you could easily, you know, you couldn't just overnight lay off half the council workforce in one area in order to, you know, do something else. You couldn't overnight close down the council's infrastructure there were statutory obligations to, to attend to certain services like collecting the rubbish. So in the end, it is true that formally, in Porto Alegre at least, the, 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 the participatory budget council had to sign off on the whole budget. So in that sense, and it could, in theory, change that, that whole budget. But in practice, by far the largest amount of money, not really discussed and not really altered by the participatory budget. It was this extra money available for new works, for new investments that was really shaped by the participatory budget. And that's always been a, a bone of contention, if you like, between critics and uh, defenders of the, of the Porto Alegre participatory budget. So what was the reception of the process by the citizens of the city? Well, that's also another uh, interesting issue in the sense that it can be interpreted. Into, you know, the opponents would say, well, this doesn't amount to much because, you know, only, you know, a small percentage, if you're lucky, 10 percent of the, of the city's population uh, ever took part in it. On the other hand, there have also been or there were at that time and have been since opinion polls, which consistently show that a significant majority of the overall population of the city are very much in favour of the participatory budget, even though most of them have never actually taken part in it. So that's a kind of contradictory issue as well. You know, to what extent can you expect a numerical majority of the population to take part in that kind of direct democracy or whether they are happy to sort of let people who are more interested, more active, more energetic, be involved in that uh, decision making process, as it were, on their behalf. And so how much of it depended on informed and active citizenship? 
Well, this has become an issue in other places that have tried to do things similar. And often people argue, well, it's not possible because people aren't well enough informed, people aren't well enough educated, people don't understand how local government finance works. You know, we have to educate people and train people before we can have any kind of direct democracy like that. My feeling is that the Port Allegri experience rather points in the opposite direction. Uh, it is the participatory budget that teaches people how to participate in, in that kind of direct democracy. The experience in Porto Alegre was that, you know, as soon as people in local communities began to see that they really were having an effect, that the party budget really could do things, that it had real power in that sense, the participation grew substan very substantially from a very, very small starting point to far from the majority of the population, but nonetheless large numbers of people. And I think that, you know, the point is that People have that instinctive interest and desire to take part and contribute to and, and can even control those decisions. And that in the process, they learn very, very quickly how local government works, how the budget is structured and the technicalities of it. So it's also it has been and was an extraordinary educational process itself. And did the budget suffer from corruption at all? Well, one of the virtues of the participatory budget, and this is... Indeed, one reason why, for example, the World Bank, paradoxically very keen on, on the participatory budget and participatory budgets in general, is that they tend to operate as an antidote to corruption. In Brazil, as in very many parts of Latin America and other parts of the world, you know, local government has traditionally been ridden with corruption. And if not outright corruption, at least different forms of clientelism and influence, peddling of influence and, and so on and so forth you vote for me, I'll, I'll pave the street in your community, etc., etc., that kind of thing, from that to, to, you know, straightforward embezzlement. And this becomes very much more difficult. Both of those kinds of political corruption and personal corruption become very much more difficult when the whole process is being subject to uh, scrutiny by, you know, organized communities. So, you know, actually, by and large, I would say the party budget has been extraordinarily corruption-free. That's not to say there have not been any incidents of abuse and manipulation of it. Uh, but that certainly hasn't been the, the general pattern at all. And how has the actual format of the participatory budget itself evolved in Porto Alegre over the years? Well, I think it basically grew and, and increased in the level of participation and the amount of power it, it had over the shaping of the budget right through until the beginning of the year 2000, 2001, 2002, thereabouts. Well, I think two things happened. One was that there was a problem in that many of the promises and the commitments made to build this or that you know, bit of infrastructure in this or that community took longer, ran up against organizational and political problems and weren't finished in time and so on and so forth. So I think there was a, a level of disenchantment and frustration began to grow around the beginning of the new millennium, I think, over the sort of unfulfilled promises that took its toll. And at the same time, uh, that was when the PT lost control of the administration in Porto Alegre. The incoming administration, the centre-right coalition, decided that it, it was still politically popular in Porto Alegre. They would have paid a political cost if they tried to dismantle it and get rid of it. So they kept it, basically. But I think it, it, it increasingly lost its political edge, that sort of educational mobilizing capacity that it had in, in the early and middle years. And it became much more just about a sort of trade-off of 
who was going to get which road paved and who was going to get this this built that where and that built there. It became almost, although I haven't had first-hand experience of it over the last decade almost, I have met and talked with people who are still involved with it on several occasions over the last year or two. And my impression is, and I say it's a second-hand impression rather than a first-hand impression, and it is now very much a shadow its former self, is almost entirely about lobbying to get this or that work done in your community uh, and increasingly less and less by the sort of organized population as a whole and more and more by sort of interest groups within the, those communities. That's my impression. Has the process suffered similarly across the Brazilian state? Well, as I suggested before, the Porto Alegre version and some others that model themselves on the Porto Alegre version was always going right back to the beginning of the 90s when they first developed the first half of the 90s, um, was always different from and more radical than the version applied in most uh, of the cities. The principle of it being having sovereign decision-making power was not really implemented, either because it was purely consultative or because the mayor had sort of veto power over it or because there was a budget commission that was parity between the, the organized community and the local government officials, for example, various different arrangements of that sort that basically significantly reduced the actual decision-making power of the community in deciding the shape of the budget. That was one difference right right from the beginning. And I would say that the radical version has disappeared as far as I can see. And the only thing that remains are versions of the, the less radical, different versions of the less radical variant. You know, the other issue was this question about how much money it decides over. Like as I say, although in Porto Alegre, you know, in practice, it only decided on the investment budget, it in theory at least had control over the whole budget. And it did have pretty much effective control over the whole of the investment budget. In many other places, it was only a small proportion of the investment budget that ever even, you know, was ever even considered by the participatory budget. So both in terms of the degree of decision making power and the scale, the, how much of the the budget it, it influenced, there were significant differences. And the third uh, important principle of the Porto Alegre radical version, I would say, was that it was self-regulating. That's an important one, I think, because it, in other words, it wasn't laid down in some kind of municipal ordinance or some sort of local bylaw or something that this is how it will work. The rules by which the participatory budget were designed and redesigned and constantly reinvented by the participatory budget process itself, in other words, by the communities organized and meeting in those different spaces. So it was never set in stone, always self-controlled. And again, that's not hasn't always been the case in or hasn't by and large has not been the case in, in many of the less radical versions. The old Gaia hypothesis, as it was first stated, arose like this. What I'd found was that looking at the Earth in the Mars business and discovering this wonderful atmosphere with all of these gases out of equilibrium and yet somehow keeping constant, I knew there was something that was regulating. And it was natural for me to think that it was life that was doing the regulating and that it was doing it in such a way as to keep the Earth comfortable for itself. I think few would have come upon it differently when confronted with the evidence that I had there. 
the next few years I went chundering around looking for evidence that would support this notion that life was regulating the planet and keeping it comfortable for itself. And I was brought up short and sharp by Richard Dawkins and Ford Doolittle's comments that there was just no way that life could regulate anything beyond its phenotype, and this was all nonsense. This led to the development of the Daisy Woman, which showed how, in fact, it wasn't life, but the whole system of life tightly coupled with the physics and chemistry of the planet, with its environment, that did the regulating, with regulating being an emergent property of this tightly coupled system. So you have lived and worked in Venezuela as a journalist. What were your experiences of Chavez's Bolivarian revolution? Well, of course, there are very many and diverse. I think one area that it may be interesting, since we've been talking about Allegri, would be to talk about the attempt to develop forms of participatory democracy in Venezuela, because I, it hasn't often been discussed in the same way, certainly in the English-speaking world. In Latin America, I think there is more discussion of the connection between the two. There was, at the very beginning of the Bolivarian Revolution, well, at the very beginning, I'd say, up until about 2004, thereabouts, there were a number of attempts to implement something like the Porto Alegre participatory budget. And they were unsuccessful for a number of reasons. But I would say the main ones were precisely because they didn't follow those cardinal principles of the Porto Alegre participatory budget. That's to say, on the one hand, they never had sovereign decision-making power in the hands of the communities in the sense that they were always based on a veto of the mayor or the town hall administration. Secondly, it wasn't quite clear how much it was up for discussion. And thirdly, which I think is a more general issue in the, in the Venezuelan experience, it was all legislated from above. Well, when I say legislated from above, it was legislated not from above in the sense of the presidency. It was legislated by the existing elected national assembly. In other words, it was presented as a fait accompli, essentially, the structure and how it worked, and it just never caught on. Of course, underlying both of those issues, and what was the fundamental reason why it never really took off in Venezuela at that time, was the opposition of the local administrations. I mean, very few mayors, Chavista mayors, really wanted to do it. The the one or two places in in Venezuela that particularly well-known example called Carora in the center-west of the country, where they did have something very successful, actually rather similar on a much smaller city than Porto Alegre, but something rather similar to the Porto Alegre participatory budget, was essentially because there was a very dynamic mayor there who was inspired by the Porto, Porto Alegre. And as in Porto Alegre, he saw his vocation as handing over his power, getting rid of his own power uh, and handing it out to the community. Uh, that was not at all the approach of the vast majority of mayors. You know, Venezuela, as in Brazil, more so than in Brazil, I would say, but as in many countries in Latin America, has a long tradition of local government, uh, well before Chavez, of uh, being an, uh, an apparatus through which people feather their own nets, essentially. You know? and, and that doesn't necessarily mean overt corruption. It just means that, you know, you use local government to bolster your allies, to bolster your positions, to kind of to favor the communities that backed you, and so on and so forth. And that, that's not a Chavez invention, and it's been anathema to performance of participatory democracy. The solution to that, solution or the, the response to that, 
was to try and do something on a much more local, small scale local level initially, which is what became the um, communal council. It actually started out a bit earlier with, uh, with people organizing to demand land rights in the urban areas. One of the most successful forms of popular organization within the Bolivarian process were these land committees, which then became the template for a whole series of other forms of localization involving the, mission, the health missions and the education missions and all the other social programs that have been, of course, one of the better known aspects of the, of the Bolivarian revolution. But those land committees became the template for what became the community councils. And they're on a much smaller scale. Rather, each individual communal council is on a much smaller scale than the participatory budget idea. It's essentially a group of 200 plus families in an urban area who come together, carry out some kind of diagnosis, uh, analysis of what the situation in the neighborhood is, what the needs are, and so and so forth, and design some programs and projects to, to, to deal with those needs. And then they basically apply for grants. Those grants may come from central government. The majority of them have come from central government. They may come from local government. They may come from one or other ministry. There are different mechanisms. And then they implement that project. You know, So it might, might be something very simple, like there's no, nowhere for the kids to play, so they build a basketball court. Or they might be improving the sanitation or you know, any, any number of other projects, including some e-production projects, you know, small-scale workshops different kinds of economic activities and that 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 has that has been by and large certainly was in the first few years extremely successful of course with variations in theory there are some 30,000 or more of these communal councils set up in Venezuela that isn't in my opinion a real figure because many of them may have been registered but never really operate but nonetheless there's a substantial number of these organizations which do organize, mobilize, and give a certain kind of participatory democracy, a certain kind of control over lo local communities and local resources to organize communities. They don't, by and large, they didn't, as, as they were set up, have control over municipal budgets or over public services on a wider scale. The more recent attempt has been to set up things called communes or comunas, which are basically federations of community councils which come together to take on bigger projects and in some cases to begin to administer some local services. Uh, so it could be some local social services in one town they were trying to even hand over control of the tax local tax raising facilities for these organized communities. So there's a number of different projects. That's been slower. It's happening on a limited scale but it has been much slower than, than in, indeed Chavez himself says he would like, following his, his re-election in, in October, uh, his first cabinet meeting, he spent a large part of it berating his ministers for the slow progress of the, uh, and, uh, what, what was happening with the communes, why weren't they developing, this, this had to be the future of, of the next period in office, you know, the development of popular democracy and so on and so forth. But I think the reasons why it hasn't developed are, well, complicated. These small communes that the local neighbourhoods set up, are they guaranteed funding once they put forward a proposal, or how does that process work? It, it, it's not very clear. I mean, they essentially apply to government. Which bit of government they apply to can vary. It may vary on the area. In some areas, the local municipalities are quite active in handing over funds. That's not so widespread. Most local administrations aren't actually very keen on these communes, even if they pay lip service to them on occasion. 
and precisely because of that, much of the money has come from central government. The central government, on the basis of its oil revenues, set up something called a development fund, Bond Dem, which was like a separate, a, a large pot of money. Basically, you know, the, the, the national budget set up on the oil price of $40 a barrel, for example. In fact, the price of oil was, you know, maybe getting on towards 100 a barrel. So, you know, the extra funds or part of the extra funds go into this extra, this fond then, which is then, you know, distributed by central government, indeed by the presidency. And, and a part of this is what's gone to fund these projects presented by the Communal Council. How would you describe Chavez's overall political philosophy? Is it a mixture between a brand of radical socialism and the social democrat model of Northern Europe? I don't think it has very much similarity with the today's social democratic parties in Northern Europe, in as much as, almost without exception, I guess, social democratic parties in Northern Europe have moved away from, you know, traditional social democracy towards a much more sort of market-prioritized philosophy, you know, know, what Latin America would normally be called a neoliberal economic philosophy. And that's definitely not Chavez's. You could draw some similarities with earlier generations of European social democracy. That's to say, real social reform, social services, social spending, and even the idea that that will, bit by bit, lead towards a fundamental transformation of society into something that's no longer capitalist. You know, insofar as that was the philosophy of social democracy going back a good many decades now, then I suppose you could draw a parallel with Chavez's political philosophy. However, I think it's more radical than that, in theory, at least. That's to say, if you listen to Chavez, when he actually starts talking about this, because he talks about a great many things, he doesn't always talk about this, but when he does talk about socialism, when he does talk about what the aims of the Bolivarian Revolution are, then it almost always is about transforming. I mean, he really does believe, he says he believes, and there's no reason, I don't think, to suppose that he doesn't believe, that what he is doing, what they are doing, is working towards fundamentally transforming the nature of Venezuelan society. Not just in terms of providing greater social benefits to the poor, which they have done, undoubtedly they have, but in terms of changing the nature of the way the society works, which includes both transforming the way production is organized, moving away from a a reliance on the market and towards uh, a social economy, is kind of phrase they often use, and in terms of this radical participatory and protagonistic democracy. It's a rather ugly phrase if you translate it literally. Participatory in the sense that we've been discussing, protagonistic in the sense that this will be the main form, that the organized communities should be the main form of democracy. It's never been quite clear what could be or what would ideally, and according to this philosophy, be the relationship between this new form of participatory direct democracy through the communal councils and the communes and the existing institutions of representative democracy. Chavez has never, and perhaps because it would be politically extremely controversial if he did, he's never explicitly said that he wants to get rid of or he wants to replace representative democracy with direct democracy. But he has said on many occasions, to paraphrase, the idea that, you know, we are trapped in the old bourgeois state, indeed calls it, and we need to move towards a a communal state, a new revolutionary communal state. 
i.e. one based on these new forms of direct democracy. So in that sense, it is a, it's, a de- it's, it's, it's very much more than a traditional social democratic vision. It's a radical socialist vision. Now, of course, the big question is, what's the relationship between that philosophy, that some would say rhetoric, and what they're actually doing and what they're actually achieving? And there, I think, is the sort of nub of the question. We talk about moving away from the market towards a social system. How much progress has he made within democratizing the production systems? I think the short answer is not a lot, which is not to say there haven't been attempts. Uh, there were a series of attempts to Chavez by the, the traditional opposition. The, the coup in 2002, the, the lockout in 2003, the recall, the, uh, recall referendum in 2004. When all those had failed, and Chavez was basically kind of consolidated in, in office in the middle of 2004, there was a certain sort of radicalization of the, of the process. You know, they were able to sort of dedicate themselves more to uh, what they wanted to do rather than just surviving. And one of the things they did was to launch quite an ambitious program for cooperatives and for something, again, doesn't translate too well, endogenous development, an attempt to kind of use cooperatives and land reform and a series of other mechanisms to shift the shape of the economy away from dependence on oil, away from basically exporting oil and importing almost everything else, towards uh, self-sufficiency in food production, towards the production of many other goods through community enterprises, cooperatives, and so on and so forth. Most of that has not worked, is the short, is the short answer. Most of it has, it, it just hasn't, hasn't developed in the way that it was intended to. And I think that's, you know, I, I'm not an economist, but I think that comes down a lot to, again, to, the, to, to Venezuela's dependence on oil. Insofar as the economy is massively dependent on oil, you know, when the price of oil goes up, it becomes much cheaper and much easier to import everything than to try and reshape the economy. Unless you had complete control over the economy, which Chavez certainly does not, essentially Venezuela remains a market economy in in most respects, the the internal dynamics of the economy push it in that direction. People make a lot of money and it's easier importing lots of stuff than it is, you know, suddenly developing an agricultural sector which had been virtually abandoned since the 1930s to grow your own food, for example. What has the effect of Chavez's Bolivarian revolution been on the politics of the region in South America? Very important, undoubtedly. I think it's part of a wider process, so I don't think you can put it down simply to the influence of the Bolivarian revolution. I mean, it's part, you know, it's part of, a, of a process which combines very widespread opposition to the sort of neoliberal consensus that dominated and and devastated many economies in the region through the 1980s and 1990s, and which was expressed in a whole different series of uh, radical social struggles, you know, from the Bolivian water wars to the Argentinian uprising in 2001 and many other instances. So I think that the the, the election of Chavez 
fits into that pattern. His opposition to that neoliberal model fits into that pattern. But it's the fact that it actually came to governmental office for the first time in Venezuela, then subsequently in different degrees and in different ways in Bolivia, in Ecuador, arguably possibly in some others as well. Um, that had a huge influence. It had a huge influence on the other governments. In the, it had a huge influence, diplomatic uh, influence on the sort of geopolitical lineup in the region. And it coincided, of course, with governments like the PT coming to power in Brazil which, while not at all on a sort of radical transformational line, nonetheless certainly did want greater autonomy from the no neighbour in the north and were determined to assert their own independence and, and autonomy. So the two things coming together have radically transformed the geopolitics of the area. Latin America is now not the US backyard, I think, politically at least, and, not, and even much less economically than it was before. In many ways, you could say that Washington's lost the plot in Latin America, really. I mean, it's had paid very much attention to it for a long time, been preoccupied elsewhere. It, it's very isolated diplomatically in Latin America. And the Chavez government is an absolutely key element of that. Not the whole story, but it's a key element in that story. If we think then about South America no longer being merely a raw materials resource for the great Western powers, what then do you see as the future for the region? Well... It's interesting you should say that because, ironically, in the case of Brazil, for example, not only Brazil, I think, this newfound autonomy actually goes hand in hand with an increasing dependence in many ways on raw material exports. Of course, the new factor here is China. Brazil is no longer primarily dependent. The relatively impressive growth that Brazil experienced over the last couple of years was not no longer dependent on its you know, subservience to the U.S. market. It's basically as a provider of raw materials for China, not only China, but uh, China is sort of the, the most important expression of that sort of reshaping of the world economy into which the, the Brazilian economy is now fits. And that's not true. That's true of the several other economies based on extractive industries, you know, Peru, Chile, and on the production of crops like Argentina. You know, all these, all these countries uh, have in many ways more autonomy from the US, but increasing dependence on raw material exports. What are your hopes for direct democracy in the region and beyond? I think it's a long process and I don't think it's, uh, it's not something, you know, in many ways we've gone, we've gone backwards in Brazil, which was the most advanced example, definitely. Uh, I think there are interesting developments, advances in Venezuela, but still, still limited with lots of obstacles. I think the other progressive in, in Latin America, so-called progressive governments, i.e. Bolivia, Ecuador, etc., have made very few moves in the in the direction of direct democracy. I would say there are there are plenty of other things they've done that are interesting in terms of indigenous rights. There, there, there are problems there as well because there are big conflicts now between the Ecuadorian governments, the Bolivian governments, and the indigenous movements. That's another story. But in terms of uh, participatory direct democracy, I would say it's quite limited. Scarcely any any developments of real significance in those other countries. So I would say we're still at the level of um, kind of symbolic advances, things that can be inspiring and can make people think and aspire to a different way of organizing democracy. But I think we're still a very long way from seeing it implemented and achieved on a wide scale across the, area, across the region. Well, thanks very much, Ian, for coming on the show today. Good, well, glad to fly. 
On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and the scientist James Lovelock, discussing the self-regulating nature of life, accompanied by the books with their beautiful people. You also heard some talk talk about how it's a shame. And you are now listening to the Odyssey singing Going Back to My Roots. Thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Omega.